Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. We're thrilled to have the full gang back for this episode. Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. We have a tribute to Alexei Navalny, so we will entitle this edition the Navalny Division edition, but we have a potpourri of issues for your consideration. And favorites, shout-outs, and rants conclude this episode. Now a word from our sponsor, Ethico. In the intricate world of ethics and compliance, each second is precious. And slow case closures are more than just delays, they're missed opportunities. Enter Ethico. Our solution revolutionizes case management, cutting case closure times in half, and turning every challenge into a chance for improvement. Imagine a workspace where efficiency and compliance coexist harmoniously. Don't just dream of faster resolutions, make it your reality. Visit ethico.com slash CPN today to book a demo and dive into our exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Empower your team with the tools they deserve. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for a live edition of the award-winning Everything Compliance. We have the full gang today. Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Professor Karen Woody, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly. Guys, we're going to have a great show today. I hope you brought your A game. We're going to start, as usual, with Mr. Armstrong. We will then transition to Mr. Kelly, Ms. Woody, Jay Marks, Esquire, near Esquire, and we'll Jay Rosen batting fifth today. Same order for shout-outs and rants. So, Mr. Armstrong, the head of the SFO, continues to make waves literally all the way to Texas. What did he talk about this week? Yeah, so it's the first speech from the new head of the S, uh, Nick F. Grave. And, and one or two podcasts ago, we talked about his early few months in the job and this week he made his first public speech and i think one of the predictions that i made in the last podcast when we talked about it was it might be a, a sort of old-fashioned coppering was the way out of the sfo's crisis so that is old-fashioned police law enforcement techniques and certainly the speech seems to suggest that he says he has quote a visceral reaction to criminality and he has some pretty interesting ideas i think the trend that i saw last time round toward more dawn raids he says is actually what he's intending and he's almost prepared for cases to fail earlier because he likes the old-fashioned coppering thing of getting people out of their houses early in the morning taking them down to a police station and seeing the whites of their eyes and seeing if he can judge their criminality from meeting with them face to face. So he acknowledged that he does take over the SFO at a time of some turmoil, but says that basically 
it has the SFO has made money through its enforcement actions. They've uh, uh, netted more than a billion sterling for the uh, UK Treasury in the last five years and a return on investment of more than 317%. So that's a pretty good ROI, I think, on any regulator's pocketbook. He's saying it's okay to fail if they bring cases before juries, and juries are effectively entitled to let people walk free away from court. But a prosecutor's job is to present the case to the jury and make sure that it stacks up. He said that time is a challenge with a lot of bribery cases. And I think a number of podcasts ago, Tom, maybe even a couple of years ago, I think we talked about a concept that you had about uh, bribery often being viewed through the rear view mirror, that actions today get investigated in four years' time and maybe prosecuted in, in six. And he's uh, conscious of those type of issues as well, I think. He's uh, proposing to invest in technology. That bit of the speech, if I'm being frank, was perhaps a little uninspiring. We've had previous directors say that technology is the answer to staffing issues. He's talking about technology-assisted review. That's obviously been around for a long time now. We've had investment in software, not by the last director, but the director before that. So obviously, there's got to be more technology as part of the mix. And he also talked about cooperation as a theme amongst law enforcement. He talked about the Axiom in Dawn Raids that we talked about a podcast or so ago and how they'd used police particularly to go and break down doors to give them police stations to interview people in, etc. And I guess that with his former police background, we can expect more of that. But the really radical thing, I think, about the speech is looking at whistleblower bounties. In the UK, the serious fraud office do not pay ransoms, have never paid ransoms, don't have the statutory power to. We have the UK authorities have dabbled with whistleblower bounties for antitrust competition law cases. So the Competition and Markets Authority does have the power to pay a ransom, to pay a, a bounty to whistleblowers. That's capped at £250,000. And that's only recently increased. The cap was £100,000. So by US standards, absolute chicken feed in terms of in terms of amounts. But F. Grave is saying that in the US, 86% of DOJ settlements and judgments are based on a report from a whistleblower. And he says, since 2012, 700 UK-based whistleblowers have engaged with US law enforcement. And his assumption, I think, is that they engage with the US authorities not the UK authorities because they're chasing the dollar, because the US authorities will split awards with whistleblowers. And presumably a part of the picture is also 
that U.S. law firms are geared up to assisting whistleblowers come to justice and and share the rewards. So I think that's a pretty radical proposal, and I think it leads to more questions than answers. I've reached out to his office to see if we can get some sort of numbers on that. Are we going for a CMA type scheme that would be capped at, let's say, £250,000? Or are we going for a percentage scheme like the like the US has, which might mean much bigger numbers, particularly if we're talking about investigations of the size of Rolls-Royce or Airbus, for example. But I haven't got a reply. They've said that what's in the speech is all that the director is saying at this stage. So it's very early stage for that proposal, but I think possibly a radical change in thinking amidst all the other stuff that's that's somewhat more conventional. But obviously, I think some of our esteemed panel have followed whistleblower awards in the US. It'd be really interesting to see if anyone else has any thoughts on that. Matt, you got something for us? I do not have uh, follow-up thoughts about that specifically, but Jonathan Marks, uh, Jonathan Armstrong, I just wanted to uh, give two cheers to Mr. F. Grave for what you had talked about there. He was saying, it's okay to fail. It's okay to take a case to a jury. And then if the jury doesn't take up the, uh, a conviction, so be it. It reminded me a lot of the book from a few years ago by Jesse Isinger, The, the Chicken Shit Club. I apologize to all of our readers or listeners because I know that this podcast is a family program. But nonetheless, Mr. Eisinger brought up a very good point that prosecutors should not be afraid to take strong cases they believe they have to a jury and try and hold companies accountable. If they fail, okay. But if you're going to be chicken shit about ever trying a case in court, then you got problems. It's nice to see the FSSFO gets it. And they might hopefully be a bit more emboldened along those lines. That's good to hear. Jonathan, let me uh, pick up on some of your points on the bounty. It almost sounded like encouraging or incentivizing UK whistleblowers to circumvent UK law by going to the United States for an increased bounty where that information would go back to the serious fraud office through regular DOJ SFO channels is did I get that part? I'm I'm not sure. I think he's trying to keep it local. And I think he's trying to at least float the idea that the SFO should be allowed to pay bounties. I mean, obviously, we've had these conflicts with, with the US authorities where they've almost been fighting over cases. And we've had some unseemly trade-offs, if you like, between the US and the UK. And we know of that in part because of the employment tribunal case that the SFO was involved with, which put some of those issues in the public domain. I, I don't know whether this is encouraging people to go to the US. My perception is it's the opposite. My perception is that he's wanting to say we should be able to incentivize whistleblowers as well. And if we did, some of those 700 that made cross-channel telephone calls would have dialed local instead. All very interesting. 
Matt Kelly, could you explain to our audience what the DFS is and why they have caught your interest over the past week or so? I can, yes. We are going to pivot to artificial intelligence because the New York Department of Financial Services, DFS, which, as you might guess, is the state regulator for New York that has broad domain over any financial services firm or really any firm at all that offers financial services to New York residents. It has proposed new guidance for artificial intelligence governance in the insurance sector. And for everybody who is not in New York or not in the insurance business wondering why are we talking about this, bear with me because DFS has actually put forth some really good, thoughtful proposals about how, in this case, insurance firms, but really any business, they would do well to look at these guidelines about how you would manage the adoption of AI in your enterprise. Um, exactly what their final rules for insurance might look like. We don't yet know. How vigorously will they enforce those final rules whenever they are adopted? We don't know. But even at this preliminary stage, I would advise any compliance officer worried about AI, regardless of where you are, regardless of your industry, go and take a look at what DFS has proposed here because there's a lot of good sense in it. Now, I'll just give you a couple of examples. First, the proposed rules talk a lot about how you would document your use of AI at your company. For example, a description of how you identify operational, financial, and compliance risks associated with AI and the internal controls you have, ahem, that are intended to mitigate those risks. An up-to-date inventory of all the AI that your company is either using right now or is under development or that you have recently retired a description of how the AI works, including any external data that the AI is sucking in to do its large language learning thing, which we humans can no longer understand, a description of how you monitor the AI usage and performance. So that's something that every company should already be doing. And frankly, you should be doing it for all of your IT. One thing that struck me is if we took all of what I just said and substituted ERP software for AI, if you couldn't do all of that for your ERP software systems, your external audit firm would fail you faster than my 11th grade chemistry teacher flunked me, which was pretty immediate, by the way. So there's a lot of it is just good common sense governance about how are we going to integrate this new tech into our systems. Now, it could have been cloud computing 10 years ago, could have been social media 15 years ago. It's AI right now, but there's just good practices there. I'll give you a few more that are more about what are the actual internal controls you are allegedly implementing to govern your AI. You would have to talk about how you assess the accuracy and completeness of your AI documentation, how you're actually being sure that you're adhering to all of these standards you say that you have, how, what is the process to evaluate the controls that you've established to evaluate your monitoring controls over AI? How do you assess potential biases in the data that could result in some sort of unfair discrimination? This, by the way, is why I think DFS picked on insurance first, because think of the huge troves of personal data that they collect on people to be able to set premiums. And 
what are the biases that might be introduced where certain groups are discriminated against, perhaps even by accident, perhaps the AI just learns in ways we didn't anticipate to be biased, which is a thing. We have talked about it, I think, on this podcast before, but that has happened. So there's an awful lot there. And Tom, if I could go down a small side road, we even also recently had a very instructive enforcement action from the Federal Trade Commission against the big pharmaceutical chain here in the U.S., Rite Aid. Rite Aid was experimenting with facial recognition technology in its stores not long ago in the 2010s to be able to identify people coming into the stores, are they potential shoplifters, by comparing the images of customers as they go into the store with a database Rite Aid had built of supposedly known shoplifters. If there was a match, the employee would get an alert on their phone to do something, observe the customer, tell the customer to leave, call the cops, That is an intriguing idea in theory. According to the Federal Trade Commission, it was not executed well. They did not have controls over the quality of the images in their shoplifter database. They did not have processes in place to study the risks of false positives, where Rite Aid is flagging customers as shoplifters when, in fact, they were not shoplifters. But employees would then, because there was insufficient training about this, go and harass these innocent customers anyways. Now, for the record, Rite Aid says this is wildly overblown. I do not think they agreed with a lot of the FTC's findings, although they did agree to a ban on using this facial recognition technology, I think, for five years. But nonetheless, what struck me was that, okay, poor technical controls over your data poor monitoring of the output of the system, poor employee training. We could talk about that. We have talked about that for all sorts of compliance and IT risks for years. And it happens to be about AI right now. But it does show that a lot of the regulatory enforcement companies might face over AI, we're not waiting around for AI-specific regulations to be dreamed up and go into effect. There are a lot of ways your use of AI, if you don't do it wisely, per those good ideas from DFS, you could have uh, regulatory enforcement right now, today, with existing regulations. I think none of that is going to change, and none of it needs to wait on all of these AI regulations that allegedly are going to come sometime soon out of Europe, out of the Biden administration, out of thin air. A lot of it, you should already be tackling this because it's good block and tackle IT governance that you need to be doing. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a comment, question, or other for Matt? He, 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 as we say in in the UK, I think you're absolutely right. We don't need to necessarily wait. The EI Act in the EU is still around two years ago, two years to go, although we made quite a bit more progress in the last 10 days or so. But we've had a good case out of Italy from the Garanta, the Italian Data Protection Authority, that sounds very similar to your Rite Aid case. It involves a local authority in Italy that was effectively building a proof of concept to do good things like protect synagogues and places of worship against attacks, but went about it in the wrong way. And there's some interesting lessons from that investigation and that fine. And Maybe it's for a wider discussion on another day, but this whole process that you talked about 
in Europe, you'd have to do a data protection impact assessment. You'd have to look at the whole process, look at the risks and look at the mitigating factors is is super, super important. And the obligations to comply are now. It's always particularly important with things like proof of concept, which I know quite a lot of people are doing, or installing technology that comes in from other people. You're still going to have to do that risk assessment. You, you want to do that DPIA framework. And just on another topic, literally as I was speaking, the SFO in, announced another investigation. So they've charged two senior managers at Petrofac. So it looks like this trend of increased enforcement is ongoing, even the director being rude enough to do stuff whilst we were speaking about it on this podcast, or flattering enough to do it. Karen Woody, you directed us to a upcoming trial, and I hope I get this name right, Panuat, and it involved, involves shadow insider trading. Yeah. So we're going to get to go down a double rabbit hole. Could you explain right. the background of the case, what shadow insider trading is and the significance of this prosecution? Yeah, I, I was looking back over our previous podcast and realized we've never touched on this, despite this being something that is top of mind for now over two years. This is a really interesting case that the SEC is bringing on a novel theory of insider trading. And it is going to trial next week. That's why I was jumped to mind as something to talk about on today's podcast. But it's been percolating in the Northern District of California for since August 2021 is when the SEC filed this. And the thing that's interesting about this and the reason this is a novel theory is that the gist of what happened here is a guy named Matthew Panawat, who works for a sort of smaller biopharmaceutical company called Medivation. And he learns in the course of his employment that Medivation is in talks to be bought out by Pfizer. And with that information, which granted would have been probably material non-public information, he should not trade in his own stock about that. That's a pretty standard classical insider trading theory. You're, you are an insider. You cannot trade when you learn things about what will change the value of your own stock of, of the company you work for. But Matthew is savvy, and what he does is he trades in Insight. And Insight is a similar company to Medivation. So it's seen as a peer-ish company in this sort of smaller space of, like I said, biopharmaceutical research and development type companies. And so he ends up making a, about, I think, $107,000, something like that, because he puts two and two together and thinks, hey, if Pfizer's about to buy us. Insight is very similarly situated, either because of just the news of Pfizer buying us or the fact that there might be a suitor for Insight. Whatever his reasons are, he buys in a different company. And like I said, that ends up earning him a significant, significant windfall. I think it's a hundred and some thousand dollars. So as you can imagine, just by those facts, this is a really fascinating case because he has no information at all about Insight. He only knows information about his own company. And so everyone is a little bit baffled how the SEC is going after this guy for doing this thing. But the SEC's theory is, hey, listen, you've got MNPI, which is material non-public information. You breached a duty. And the duty he breached was that he had signed an employment agreement that said he would not trade based on any information he receives in his employment in any company. It doesn't even say in pure companies or anything, it has a really blanket, broad 
statement in the employment manual about how he's not supposed to trade in anything based on information he learns from, from his firm. And so the breach of duty the SEC is claiming here in order to bring what's on a, a theory, a case under the misappropriation theory, you've breached some sort of duty and you've made money in a trade in, as a result of that breach of duty. That theory already is about, gosh, about 30 years old. That came about in the O'Hagan case in the mid nineties. And so it, it was a new thing. We used to only have this classical uh, understanding of insider trading, which is you as the insider in a company should not be trading based on information. So it was an insider idea of just, that's what you cannot trade in. Misappropriation theory expanded that to a broader sort of idea of, you know, something about another company and in breach of the source of the information, a duty to that source of information, that is sufficient to find insider trading liability. This is that tweaked a tiny bit. So there is potentially this breach. The tweak here is that the information he learns isn't anything to do with this other company. He's really, the novel idea about this case is that sort of almost analysis, the sort of additional step that he is trading in a different company without any necessarily information about that other company. And the SEC theory is that these companies are economically linked in such a significant way that is sufficient to basically have been inside information effectively almost in insight. So this is, like I say, the first time the SEC is moving forward with this idea of shadow trading, meaning I know about this and then the shadows, the insight being the shadow company that's going to follow the information about motivation. That is what is the problem here. And so last January, 2022, the SEC won the the denial of the motion to dismiss. Panelot moves to dismiss, saying this is not actually illegal. I'm I'm just I'm putting maybe some analysis together, or not. I'm just trading an insight. That happens in January, and then just in this past November, late November, the uh, court denied his motion for summary judgment as well. So we are going to trial next week, and so it's interesting. And even just this denial of summary judgment had some really important holdings, meaning that, of course, this was material information. Panawat argued that it wasn't non-public, that this wasn't yet an acquisition that had been finalized, and that maybe this the fact that they were in talks wasn't necessarily completely private information. But the big one was about whether or not this is a breach of duty. I do think the SEC has a slam dunk on this idea that he had signed an insider trading policy that said he wouldn't trade in any other publicly traded company. That's a pretty big problem. But the court went further and said there's a couple other duties here that were sufficient to find a breach. And one was just a general confidential information for anything regarding your regarding your business and your employment at Medivation. That should have been considered confidential. But then finally, the one that I think is going to get the most traction is the SEC argued that he has just a general duty through this sort of idea of agency principles, just idea that you should not have used anything for, it's basically what the gist of shadow trading, I think allegations will turn on going forward, even in the absence of some of these employment policies not to trade. So what, and that's really, I think what's going to be the importance of this case. The fact that there's an employment agreement saying you cannot trade right there, you have a violation of employment agreement. So that's in itself, maybe enough to show a breach of duty. But imagine if there had not been that employment agreement, that's the angle I think that's going to be novel and that the SEC is going to try to keep pushing on to say, no, just in general, you cannot do shadow trading because you're putting two and two together 
about things that could affect another company. And so you can imagine the slippery slope of this is gonna could, could seem a little drastic to those who are analysts or people in the in in this space that are like, I thought that was actually completely kosher up until now. And then you have the other side of it, which is no, this is open shut. Someone is using inside information for their own gain. You could have a more ideologue who thinks this is just should be illegal. And this is fine for the SEC to take this, even if it's again maybe pushing the current theory of insider trading a step further. But that's something we're okay with. That's what I'm focusing on. And I think we should all be looking at next week because it could really alter the landscape for insider trading liability going forward. Karen, it seems to me that last prong creating a agency relationship is moving very close to a blanket honest services or the entire company workforce. Am I hearing that right? Or am I just too tied into my Enron thinking? <laughs> no, you're not wrong. I imagine you and Skilling have had some beers over this uh, concept about <laughs> services, but I think, I, I yeah, I think that's why I think I was like, this could be a pretty broad sweep. I will say, speaking of Enron and Honest Services, this is moving forward under 10B5. So the SEC's problem pushing this one. The DOJ in a criminal context could bring this in the same manner, but they also could use securities fraud, which is 18 USC 1348, which is the same concept of insider trading. And that's just any breach of, that's just any intent to deceive related to a trade in the security. So there, that obviously the distinction there is you have the SEC on one hand who's moving in a civil fashion versus DOJ in a criminal fashion. That's a pretty significant difference. But there are avenues to get to that place anyway, I guess is what you're saying. But yeah, I think this idea that this agency duty writ large, even in the absence of a signed agreement not to trade, just that you should not be using anything you learn in your capacity and employment to trade in other companies that are not necessarily, that's not the, the, what the information is about, is, I think, is a stretch. How, I've read, I wrote, read several client alerts on this, and one of the commentaries was, how do you train based on this? Do you tell your employees, sorry, you can't trade in like-minded industries anymore? Uh, how far? And then how do you regulate that? Do our employees required to, to self-report purchases of stock in a public company? It's interesting. I know there's a lot of commentary out there about what sweatshirt I'm wearing. <laughs> but what's funny is I presented a paper at Michigan State Larvy, which is why they gave me the sweatshirt, about exactly this. And my thought was we expand maybe 10B51 plans to cover more of an industry-wide prohibition or have different types of uh, options of when or windows when you can trade based on what apparently also is going to be swept in for being considered insider trading based on information within your firm. Meaning if I can only trade in Medivation because I'm a Medivation employee based on my 10B51 plan, then what should be added to that 10B51 plan is anything else the SEC is going to come after me for consider, that's considered using that information as well. So insight should be only trades and insight should be also be done pursuant to a 10B51 plan, even though I don't work in insight. So something like that was a thought I had of just maybe everything is completely off the table in terms of what you're trading on. If you think there is any use of this inside information in the other trades. Mr. Marks, you have a question or a comment? 
I guess my comment is it goes material inside information. Who else would have that information other than him? So Matt and I were having sort of a background conversation. I think I'm on the side of the SEC with this one. So I, I'm not speaking for Matt at all. I would never do that, but it just appears to me that it just, I just, I think fundamental logic would tell you that it's just not right. That's fair. <laughs> I don't disagree with that, but I, the only button on that is that there's a lot of insider trading law that is, I think, maybe fundamentally not right, but still is legal for various reasons. Like the law around insider trading is bananas. And so I think we could probably, maybe a lot of us agree that, yeah, we should probably tamp this down. But mm. to, but so far, this is something that might have been considered legitimate trading. So well, that's the only thing can, I think. I think but, but, but can we start with the House and the Senate? Yes. Let's start there first, and then we can go into whether this is an expansion of 10b-5 or not. Fair. Mr. Marks, that seems like a very good way to transition over to you. What do you have for us today? I'm an angry bear today because you asked me to talk about First Energy. It's going to be my rant anyway. When are people going to learn? It's the same, it's the same set of facts, wash, rinse, and repeat for most organizations that put themselves in this particular kerfuffle. It's lack of governance, lack of controls, poor compliance program, lack of oversight. Let's just keep going. It's just pathetic. The fact that they let this go on and it was caught, which I, I when I read this, I had to stop for one second because it almost appeared to me, and please everybody here correct me, that is they were using the regulatory body as a control. These are good things to happen. We should let these things happen. I'm like, in no, in 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 nowhere ever. If you look at in the three lines of defense or whatever lines of defense that you would want to throw up there, would you absolutely use a regulatory body or an external auditor or anything like that as a control? So I am, I am, I was apoplectic when I read this. I'm even more apoplectic when I think about it and and going through this fact pattern because my whole thing is okay. What can we have done better? Governance poor oversight poor related to governance risk management obviously poor controls poor compliance poor can we keep going it's it's the same thing i think that they should just hammer these people and they have hammered them and i i I, number one i think it's embarrassing but number two is it should be a wake-up call for everybody out there that this is not rocket science there are fundamental tenets and elements of a good compliance program they've been listed by many including our our folks in 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 various guidance papers that have been issued and people like us that espouse about it all the time i i just don't understand i just i really don't understand the 230 million dollar fine is probably a drop in the bucket for them but i i can't wait to see what comes out of this i just can't because it's just uh, it's to me it's just an elementary breakdown of things that fundamentally should have just been there the we had a, a major federal prosecution on this and now we're going to have a state prosecution on this mm-hmm. It, the fallout, I hope, is that compliance professionals will start to look U.S. domestic and use those same rigor around controls that you've articulated when they do things domestically. Maybe, maybe not, but I think you're right. More will be revealed, Jonathan. Yeah, like, for example, reform around lobbying and campaign finance. If somebody has control over that, if they have control over cash and they can make those types of cash disbursements for whatever they are that to me there's risk around that i don't get it so that means somewhere somehow i would love to see their risk assessment and see where this falls on there even if it actually even appears on there 
We all talked about governance risk and compliance being a waterfall concept. At least that's my phraseology about this. And you have to have a good risk assessment, which basically drives compliance. I would love to see theirs. I would, even if it, I don't even know if it exists, but I would love to see it and see what it says. With that, we're going to go across the country to Jay Rosen. Jay, what do you have for us today? Jay, you're earlier this morning. I was looking at the FCPA enforcement actions that had occurred over the last ten years, from 2014 to 2023. And from my old investment banking days, we always liked to have this hockey stick that things were growing, revenue was growing, and everything's great. If you look at 2019 to the present, you've got this inverted hockey stick and things aren't growing and things are becoming less and less apparent. Since 2019, the trend in FCPA is going the wrong way. Many of us pundits thought that when the new administration came in, we'd have more enforcement as opposed to less. What's changed over those past couple of years is an increased use of data analytics. And recently the DOJ has continued to say that they wanna put more emphasis on self-reporting. So exactly how does this work and how can companies benefit from this? Over the past two years, we've seen the increase of data analytics. And if the DOJ can leverage this data to bring on new matters, it certainly would expect companies to have better data, number one, and number two, to use it to their own benefits. Now, I'm going to go a little bit old school filming uh, movie reference to you. We're looking at a movie called Working Girl with Melanie Griffith, and she played a secretary named Tess who's trying to make it in the big world of M&A. And one day she's on the train and she's riding and she looks at her newspaper and she sees an ad for a radio station. And she says, Trask Radio. So let's put these two disparate things together like peanut butter and chocolate and make a Reese's cup. So I'm gonna take a look at monitors and data analytics. And quite, quite often when you have a deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreement, you get assigned a monitor and the company goes along kicking and screaming for the next 24 to 36 months. What happens if a company brings on a proactive monitor? This would be almost the same as the reactive monitor, but the company would maintain leverage and control by having, excuse me, by having engaged the monitor. So how does it work? Companies now have a plethora of data to parse and to leverage, and they can use this data for very good insights and for information to self-report or not. Previously, the DOJ has expected companies to deliver an investigation in a nice box wrapped with a bow. This expectation is now furthered by DOJ to strongly encourage companies to give another present by skipping the investigation and going straight to self-reporting. So now this brings us to the concept of being your own monitor. Just as a reactive monitor comes into a company and utilizes internal data to derive a baseline assessment, this same mechanism can be used on a proactive basis. You can leverage your internal ethics and compliance resources, or you could use a fractional monitor that would come on site from two to six days a month or full time if the company has the appetite and the budget. But just like Melanie Griffith's character test discovers how Trask and radio could be a winning combination, the same thing could be said about internal data and analytics and being your own monitor. 
So Jay, how do you in how would a company go about bringing in or talking to a third party on that? Do you call EY? Do you call Jonathan Marks? What do you do? I'm sure everyone on this call could be helpful. What you need to do is to take a look at how you're set up internally. Sometimes there is a case that can be made for having somebody who's removed from the process. So if you come in with an outside perspective, you might be willing to dig a little deeper and find something that may require further investigation. But if your organization has a, a mature ethics and compliance program and you have the headcount and the staff on hand, you can do that. The one thing that you're going to worry about is the objectivity. So that's why I'm thinking what may be a nice compromise by the two is working with somebody on a fractional basis. So you don't have the headcount. So you have a little bit of the, a little bit of an omniscient point of view, but either way it could work from the fractional perspective or having somebody on staff to do the work. All right. Mr. Marks is now straight with us again. So we are going to move on to fan favorites, shout outs and rants. We'll take the same order. Mr. Armstrong, what do you got? I've got a bit of a rant. It's somebody that I've been following for professionally for about 15, 16 years. I want to say it slowly. Julian Assange is not a journalist. We've got the extradition hearing coming up next week. There are, I think, 45 people have tried to look at the effect of extradition on the erosion of journalistic freedoms. But to my extent, uh, from my perspective, it's not, it, it's simply irrelevant. He's doesn't pass the threshold of being a journalist. He's been a computer programmer. He's been an assistant at raves. He's been a hacker. He's been a criminal. He's been a criminal who pleaded guilty in court and then said to the judge on sentencing, a great misjustice has been done. He's been an IT consultant. He's been many things to many people. But in my view, he's never been a journalist. The court shouldn't treat him as such. Matt Kelly. First, let me just add on with Jonathan Armstrong. I agree. Julian Assange is not a journalist. I have known many over the years. They don't do those kind of things that he does. But Tom, I was originally going to rant about any number of things going on in Washington here, but I think ethics and compliance and anti-corruption people would be remiss if we did not stop instead and I suppose rant about the death of Alexei Navalny, which was announced this morning. So Alexei Navalny is, was Vladimir Putin's most outspoken critic, and apparently he has died this morning, so say Russian authorities. They have not been entirely forthcoming, in my opinion, on exactly how he died. They just said he felt dizzy after a walk and then died quickly. I think anybody who believes that he died because of some sort of illness or medical condition that came about naturally, you are kidding yourselves. He seemed in good spirits and in good health as recently as a week ago, I think it was. He was last seen, and now he's dead at the hands of a regime that has had no compunction about killing many of its critics. And let's be honest, we ethics and compliance officials here in the West who talk about it in a corporate stance 
we are cheerleaders for good anti-corruption. And I think what we do is important. But we what we do is the sacrifices we make and the arguments we make are a faint candle compared to the guts that it takes for true anti-corruption leaders like Mr. Navalny. He was 47 years old. He has a young son. I should give a shout out to his wife, Yulia, who apparently this morning, after learning about her husband's death, continued to appear at the Munich Security Conference, which is happening right now. And I also think anybody who thinks the timing of this death is a coincidence. Again, you are delusional. Putin is trying to send a message to his people. Give up. I'm here to stay. He's trying to send a message to the rest of the world. Give up. I'm here to stay. And so for somebody like uh, Mrs. Navalny, I believe Navalny, if I am pronouncing the Russian correctly, she deserves enormous applause for her strength at this difficult time. And the rest of us owe a debt of thanks and admiration for Navalny, who is just, he was a paragon of anti-corruption in a very corrupt place. And what he did was just an amazing feat. It's a shame that he's gone. Karen Woody. It's hard to follow that. I second that as well. I also have a bit of a rant. I don't even know how to start or begin it. And surprising that we don't have this rant nearly every week, but I have a rant about the absolutely ridiculous gun culture that exists in this country that results in people who are attending just a parade to celebrate their home team winning a Super Bowl and still people end up being shot at something like that. It just, it's the story never ends. It feels like the everything that we try to get some amount of joy that you can take your kids to ends up being a, a, something that is dangerous. And I think, I hope I'm speaking for the majority of this country. We're just tired of it. But yeah, that's my rant. Most people would like me on mute, but I guess you guys don't. But so anyway, Karen, you stole my rant for this week. We live in a society these days where you can't even go to and celebrate your home team winning a, a Super Bowl parade. It's become pretty pathetic. Almost like what I talked about with First Energy and all the failures that happened there. I think this wash, rinse, and repeat mentality and this attitude that we live, that everything is okay, it just isn't. And if you can go back to your what we talked about with this insider trading case or anything else, fundamental logic would hopefully prevail here for the good of the order that most people should not be walking around with a weapon. Fundamental logic would tell you that most organizations should have good corporate governance and sound internal controls that absolutely make sense and have board members that are there to monitor and provide strategic guidance, but it just isn't happening. So I don't know whether we live in a, a society that, that at this point is just eroding from the inside out, but it's, it's just disturbing. And uh, I, I really don't know what more to say, but I had the same rant as you did with regards to people walking around with weapons or firing weapons in public crowds and things like that, or not being able to, to go outside. I, I, I would hope that we not living in a world of fear. Um, I certainly don't operate like that. And I don't want my kids to have an environment like that either. So something needs to be done and something needs to be done quickly, not only with guns, but corporate governance, because it's just pathetic. All right. I've got a couple of media recommendations. I think they fall more on raves than rants. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I have become addicted to this show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum looking at people on the autism spectrum and how they fall in love. I don't know if there's a message that she's trying to tell me that we watch that together. But the second thing, I heard a great interview yesterday with former Senator Bill Bradley. He's talking about a new solo documentary called Riding Along. And if you're interested, there's about a one hour podcast with him and Preet Bharara on Ask Preet. So those are my media recommendations for the weekend. I'm going to have a shout out 
hopefully a little bit lighter than some of the commentary. And I'm going to shout out to Ben Affleck. He had perhaps the most inane Super Bowl commercial ever. But when you see the entire video that's posted on Twitter of his preparation for said video, it all becomes clear to not only have that self-awareness of your limitations structurally, emotionally, physically, and musically, I thought was priceless. And I hope Dunkin' Donuts sells a ton of his merch. So Ben Affleck, great job with your Super Bowl commercial. I'm a Dunkin' man myself. Guys and gal, thank you very much. Great episode. I can't wait till uh, we can get back together. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out Uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I'd like to tell you about the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, the Compliance Tip of the Day. In the Compliance Tip of the Day, I spend five to eight minutes talking to you about something you can either immediately do to enhance your compliance program or something that you can think about doing which will greatly help the evolution of your compliance program to a best practices program. Check out the Compliance Tip of the Day on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.